How is everybody tonight? You good? Hot out there, isn't it? Um, man, I'm glad to be in Summit, Mississippi. Are you glad? I, I mean, I really am glad to be in Summit, Mississippi tonight. Uh, had the opportunity uh, last night. I drove yesterday afternoon. I was in Starkville, Mississippi. Um, some of you may have been there before. Um, uh, I had the opportunity to be at their BSU, uh, the opening night for their BSU for the fall semester. They had between 400 and 450 college students. So I had the opportunity to preach and uh, get to be with them last night. We've got a big group from our kid of our group um, that are there this semester. So it was great to get to hang out with them and to, to share with them. It's so exciting to see. Um, I'm so encouraged I, and I'm, I am so encouraged by the students that are coming out of the ministry of this church. I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to see young people that are grounded in the word, solid in their theology, desiring to live for the Lord. It is amazing to me um, just to see we've got students now, um, not just at Southwest, but we've got students at Hattiesburg. We've got students in Oxford. We've got students in Starkville. We, we, they're, they're spreading out. And as they do that, it's amazing to see. I'm so thankful for the foundation uh, that the gospel and this church has in their lives. I'm excited for how much they not only love the Lord, but love his word and want to be a part of that. And so one of the greatest ministries of a church is, is to breathe life into students. Um, they're obviously, um, they're at a pivotal point in their lives. High school and college is a, you're, you're, you're becoming who you're going to be. And, and many of you, um, know what it is that probably at times in your life, you probably maybe had times where you didn't make the best decisions, but thank God that, that even when we're young, even when we do things that we're not incredibly proud of, what I'm so thankful for, and one of the great ministries of church and that parents and grandparents need to be reminded of, is that when you lay a foundation, that sometimes even if the pendulum swings out, it's got to have a place to come back to. And if people know what that foundation is and the word of God, then, then God uses that. And so I'm th so thankful for our college students. We have a group of senior adults that encourages them and has partnered with them. And some of you have assigned college students that you have adopted. Um, I was at Mississippi State last night and walked in the BSU and five or six of our kids that are there. They come running up to me. And two of the conversations that I had was about how a couple of our senior adults that had adopted them and contacted them and how, how awesome they thought that was. And I'm just, I'm just encouraged by that. So I share that with you to say, not just if you have college students, but, but maybe you, maybe right now you're the parent of a fifth or a sixth grader. Maybe you have a, a child that's in 10th or 11th grade. And sometimes I think all we hear is negative. I've talked to you about this before, but all we hear is negative. It's like, the generation's going to hell. The culture's going to hell. Nobody else is left. And what I'm telling you is that's a lie from Satan himself. God is doing something in young people. He's doing amazing things in some lives of some young people. And so we don't need to sometimes get so bogged down with everything that we see that is negative, because if we just open our eyes, we'll see that God wants us to know that he is doing things in the lives of people and has been for thousands of years. So tonight, I want to talk to you specifically about someone that God did something incredible in the life of. If you've got your Bible tonight, would you take and join me in turning to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Tonight, uh, we are going to finish up for a little while 
Um, we're going to finish up our series on written and read, and we will come back at some point to the red letter words of Jesus. But we are starting next week. Well, um, actually, two weeks from now, uh, we will be starting on a brand new series called uh, we're going to be walking through the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. But for tonight, we're going to continue in this series on written and read. And, and I wonder how many of you um, have ever had a close family member, friend, or maybe it's someone just connected well that you knew. And they were in the throes of death. You knew that it was days or hours or even weeks. And you had wonders or you had doubts about their salvation. And over the course of my ministry, I, countless times have I heard people say, this person's in the hospital, they're dying, they don't have a lot of time left. I, I wanna I want to be sure that they're right with the Lord. And sometimes um, they're called uh, deathbed confessions. Sometimes we hear about jailhouse confessions that, that right at the end, people will confess Jesus as their savior or tell family that they're saved. And, and I think it's natural that with some of us, we wonder, was that real? Was that genuine? And you may even wonder, is that possible? Is that did, did that did that really happen? And and so sometimes I think it does us well to to understand just how deep the gospel goes. And, and there is a beautiful story um, that it, that is found here in Luke chapter twenty three. And it's a story that some of you will remember, some of that you know well. Just to give you just a a little bit of background, when we pick up the story, Jesus is on the cross. He is. Um, in the active process of dying and bearing the wrath of sin on the cross. Um, and what we know is from, from Matthew's gospel uh, and from Mark's gospel about this same event, that, that there were two thieves that were being crucified on each side of Jesus. And we know that at one point, both thieves were heaping insults on Jesus. And then we come across this story, and, and it's something that I think, absolute highlights the beauty of the gospel and I, and I want you to see this tonight we're just gonna we're gonna start reading tonight in verse 39 uh last week we talked about the verses that just preceded these and we stopped at verse 38 so tonight i just want to pick up in verse 39 and it says one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him aren't you the christ save yourself and us but the other criminal rebuked him don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then Jesus said, then he said to Jesus, remember, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. These two men represent the two options that everyone in the world faces. But I want you to notice something um, that I, I don't know jumped out of the text at me the first hundred times I read this, but it's right there in verse 39. In verse 39, one of the criminals, it says, hurled insults at him, but he asked him, he said, aren't you the Christ? And then he makes a request, save yourself and save us. Now notice the other criminal made a similar request of Jesus. So we have both criminals making a request of Jesus, but we know that one of them went to heaven and one of them went to hell. So what is the difference 
between the two requests, and how do we, how are we to understand that as we walk through that together? In one instance, um, we see that there is a criminal that comes to fear God, that was revulsed at what was being said and what was being done. He realizes his sentence is just and that Christ's sentence is unjust. And, and in these last moments, he began to fear not the people who were crucifying him, not the ones who were killing his body, but he recognizes that the man on the middle cross is the one who could actually destroy his soul. So he declares the identity of Christ, he repents of his sin, and in this, he has such an advantage over most of humanity because they live under a delusion thinking themselves to be, and you see in your notes, I put it in quotes, good people. In fact, most people would say, I may not be perfect, but, but I'm certainly better than a thief on the cross. And, and so as we come to this passage, we need to really understand what is, why is the gospel so beautiful and so precious and, and why is it such good news? And, and, is there such thing as a deathbed confession? And can somebody be truly saved in the last moments? Well, you understand that there were two thieves that were on the cross, but when we really understand their sin, if we are honest, there's not one of us in here who's not a thief. Not because you've stolen specific items from other people, but if we're breathing God's air, if we're walking on God's earth, if we're eating his food, we live because he made us and we belong to him. But if we're taking these things and we're not serving the Lord, it's just as though we are taking them and thieving them from the Lord. So we have nothing to bring to God. I, I can't tell you that there's very few passages I read in the New Testament that I don't think about the thief on the cross because he had absolutely nothing to bring. He couldn't walk to Jesus because he had nails through his feet. He couldn't even reach out to give him anything because he had nails through his hands. He was bound to a cross with hours to live, and he had absolutely nothing to give. This is a hard reality, but most people think they have something to offer God. They think that there's something in them that, that God that really needs or that we can give him and that by offering something to him that then we will be pleasing to him, that we can offer to him some form of goodness or righteousness or talent or ability. But I want you to think about the thief on the cross and ask yourself, what did he have to bring? What did he have to give? What did he have to offer? What wealth did he have? What acts of service could he give? What, what could he do in this moment? And I want you to know that the answer is absolutely nothing. We have totally missed the gospel if we don't understand that none of us are any different than the thief on the cross because you bring nothing. You bring absolutely nothing. I, I think one of the greatest misunderstandings in salvation is people thinking that, that God is offering us salvation, and as he offers it to him, we are presenting ourselves to him, and we're coming at this like it's a 50-50 relationship. He is God, and you are not, and you bring nothing. You bring absolutely nothing. So when we bow before him to pray, the arrogance it comes out if we really do see ourselves, if you saw your cry for salvation as the exact same cry as the thief on the cross, then we would understand it so much better. 
Because in his last breaths, he realized that everything about my life has been guilty. I love when you read what he has to say because he's rebuking the other criminal. And if you summarize it, he's just saying, I'm full of sin and you're full of sin and we're both guilty. We deserve to be on these crosses. This is exactly what should have happened to you and me. The only one of the three of us that shouldn't be on this cross is the man in the middle. He knew in that moment something had changed. Now, we don't have a full picture of the hours that Jesus was on the cross about what all happened. But we know that that from Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, we know that this same man just moments earlier was also hurling insults at Jesus, that he was doing the same thing that the Roman guards were doing and the same thing that the other man on the cross was doing. What happened between the time that he's hurling insults at Jesus to the time that he is identifying the identity of Jesus confessing his sin, and now asking Jesus to remember him. What happened? What happened? Far too often, I think people think that the gospel, that really you have to come to this super deep understanding. This man didn't know any systematic theology. He couldn't walk you through the Roman road. He'd never preached a sermon. He'd never been on a mission trip. He never taught a Sunday school class. He may have never sung a word of praise. He probably didn't have one verse in the entire Old Testament memorized. He knew absolutely nothing. I mean, if you fast forward just a few hours, it, it's really an incredible thing to think about because not only is Jesus dead and placed in the ground, but in that same amount of time, this guy dies and he shows up at the gates of heaven and he's welcomed in just like Noah and Moses and Abraham and the Apostle Paul and my grandmother and everybody that's ever entered the gates of heaven, this guy shows up. You talk about being saved at the last minute. I mean, breaths left in his body and he gets saved and he shows up. And I love what Alistair Begg, how he describes that. Some of you may have seen the video clip. It's incredible because the way Beck describes it is he's standing before Jesus and Jesus asks him, he stands before him and he looks up at the Lord and says, the Lord says, why are you here? And the guy, and he says, I don't really know. And he doesn't have a resume to list. He doesn't have credentials to list. He has absolutely nothing. And so everybody that may be standing there may, may have a thousand reasons why they think God ought to let them into his heaven. Well, I've served you. I've given. I've taught Sunday school. I've been on mission trips. I work with the youth. I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. And it is very possible that God could hear all of that and say, depart from me for I never knew you. This guy's answer, even though he knew almost nothing he knew the one thing he had to know. And the only reason that he had the audacity that to think that he might get in the gates is because I met a guy on a hanging on a tree and he said I could come. That's the only reason he got in. Let me tell you something. 
The only reason you're going to get in is because if you've met the man on the middle cross and he said you could come, that's the only reason. And when you come with your resumes or we come with anything else, and so he's welcome into the kingdom of God. He repents of his sin. He turns to Jesus. And I can't help but think of this. I don't know what the guy knew. Did he know he was Jesus of Nazareth? Did he, did he follow the movement? Did he know about Jesus's miracles? Maybe, but I don't know. I'm not even positive that he even truly knew Jesus' name and identity. Maybe he gets up there and says, the guy in the middle cross says I could come. He says, I, I don't even know that I remember his name, but he said I could come and it's on the authority of Christ. We have totally missed the gospel if we don't understand this passage completely missed the gospel. And so in the midst of, of this incredible statement, Jesus looks at him and, and tells him, he says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And they, just looking at Jesus in the verse before, he says, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. If we realize we have nothing to bring to God, that we're totally dependent on him, then you have to come in this plea for forgiveness with the recognition that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah. He understood his own sin. There's no gospel without the preaching of sin. We've talked over and over and over about that, that the gospel is not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, so just believe in him. That's a partial gospel. The gospel is, and you see it highlighted just in these few verses, there are two things he had to recognize. He had to recognize his own identity and what was his own identity. He was a thief and a sinner. He was worthless before the Lord. But he also had to recognize the identity of Jesus, to know who he was. Because when you understand who you are, it changes how you pray to him because it changes everything about our dependence. And so he comes before the Lord and he says, remember me when you come into your, into your kingdom. And then I, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's almost humorous that in verse 43, how many times in the gospel, 76 times in the new Testament that Jesus says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. I've learned you got to watch out around here. If somebody says, I'm going to tell you the truth, they're probably about to lie to you. Have you noticed that? Now, now let me just tell you that. Let me, I just want to, I just want to tell you the truth just between you and me. I mean, I'm just going to tell you the truth. But when Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it was a way that he was putting, if you, you understand that he was putting emphasis on it, that you really need to listen to what I'm about to tell you. This is big. Now, that's even the understatement of the year because he said, I want you to listen to me because I'm about to tell you the truth. Today, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. What a statement. What a statement. I, I can't help but wonder. I know the man had faith. He had faith enough to believe in who he was and who Jesus was. But I wonder even on that cross, if he even had the faith to go, really? Like, really? You're going to let me in? And I can't help but wonder if when he took his last breath on earth, if he wasn't shockingly surprised, oh, wow. I I'm here. Like, I I'm here. And I want you to know that the power of the gospel 
is so incredible because when we talk about the promise of heaven, and I want to talk to you just a little bit about that, it would have been hard for anyone to believe. You've got Roman soldiers that are there. You've got Pharisees that haven't confessed him. You've got people that have followed him for three years in his ministry, and they don't get it. But Jesus says immediately, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And I'm actually um, have been shocked over the years. How many people have asked me the question, what happens to a believer when they die? I've had more than you would think. What happens to a believer when they die? Now, it's not that most of these people, it's not that they don't believe in heaven. It is that that there are other doctrines that teach a doctrine called soul sleep. Some of you may have heard of this doctrine before. And that is the doctrine that everyone who dies in Christ, that if you die in Christ, you're buried in the ground and that you stay in the ground and you're almost in a comatose-like state, a state of non-existence, waiting on the return of Christ. And that's when we are going to go meet him with there in the air. And that's when you're going to experience the Lord. There's also the doctrine. Um, there's a lot of people, um, and, and the, the Roman Catholic Church has never repudiated this. There's a doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church teaches called the doctrine of purgatory. Now, to give you some old, y'all want a little church history tonight? Y'all want a little bit of church history? Before the Reformation, before Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg, one of his greatest objections to the church was the selling of something called indulgences. Now, what the indulgence were was a practice that the Roman Catholic Church used because the people were illiterate, so they relied totally on the priest to tell them what their religion and theology ought to be. So what they made up was a doctrine called purgatory. It was a place that existed. It wasn't heaven and it wasn't hell, but it's a place where people, church members, would go and they would reside, and that they had to finish paying off their sins in purgatory before they would be cleansed enough to go to heaven. But if you wanted to speed up the purgatory process, you could, if you wanted to buy for grandma, you could buy an indulgence. And the more money you spent on indulgences to the Roman Catholic Church, the quicker you could get your relative or friend out of purgatory and the faster that they would be into heaven. In fact, most of the cathedrals around the world, the ancient cathedrals, are, were financed by the sale of indulgences because they taught in this intermediary doctrine. So that is actually a doctrine today, and a lot of times they, they won't discuss it. It's never been repudiated from the Roman Catholic Church. So you have this doctrine of purgatory where the Bible, the New Testament, makes it really, really clear that when we die, one of two things is going to happen. There's only two existences for the eternal state. One of them is a place called hell or Gehenna, a place that the Bible says is a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some people have described it as a place in the very absence of God. I think it's better understood that God is not absent in hell, that God is very present in hell. But it is a difference in being the presence of God in heaven than being the presence of God in hell. I see how some of you are looking at me because you've never heard anybody say that God is present in hell. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. The difference in the way that we, have missed, that we understand it is God's presence in hell is the presence that doles out wrath. 
It is not that God is hands off. It's not that the that Satan owns hell. It's not Satan's dominion. Satan doesn't own hell. God owns hell. Think about that for just a moment. There's nothing outside the purveyance of God. He's sovereign. So hell is not the absence of God. Hell is God's doling out his righteous wrath on sinners who deserve punishment. That's one place. Or heaven, which is the eternal place of paradise as described to the thief. There is no purgatory. There is no soul sleep. So what we know, and Paul makes it very clear when he says to be absent from the body for believers is to be present with the Lord. So let me, let me just clarify a few things. When we talk about grace, now the doctrine of grace has been abused and misused ever since the first century. Paul talked about it in Romans 6, because there was people even then that were saying, why don't we just sin more so we can get more grace? Some of you may remember that. We went through Romans. It, we'll just sin all the more. That way God will have more opportunity to show us more grace. That's the exact same thing that we see today when people are saying, I'll just live however I want to live because I'm forgiven, and since God's forgiven me, it really doesn't matter. That is a completely, a complete misunderstanding of the doctrine of grace. But it's always been abused because what grace has always been is not our license to sin, but our license to live in righteousness. And if that's the case, it means that, that, that grace is there's no works required. It's no self-based righteousness required. So we go back to the thief on the cross, not just for an understanding of the immediacy of heaven, but also that there is nothing that someone can do to earn it. So, And I'm trying to be very clear. Sometimes it's just a sentence when I baptize. But if, if you've been here for a baptismal service, you've probably heard me say that I want you to know that today that we are doing this as a symbolic act. And the reason that we baptize is because God commanded us to so that we could show that we're unashamed of him. It shows symbolically that we have been washed of our sin and that we have died to the person we once were and we've been raised into a new creature in Christ. That baptistry water, and I have this conversation five minutes before everybody's baptized. Sometimes they get tickled, but I tell them this all the time. I want you to know that's summit water. When you step in there, it's the same water that when you flush the toilet, same water. When you get a, a drink of water right, right here, if you, you go by the water fountain, same water. You turn on your water hose outside, same water. And I want them to understand there's, there's nothing magical up there. That's totally symbolic. And to the misunderstanding of baptism, and this isn't just in the Roman Catholic Church. There are people in evangelical churches that don't understand the, the right of baptism. There are Baptists that don't understand baptism because they think, and this is the difference, when you hear it, the difference in an ordinance and a sacrament, I can tell some of you are like, Ooh. When something is called a sacrament, that means that people believe that the act conveys grace. So there is a huge difference in what we believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
Because when we baptize, there is no conveying of grace. There's nothing in the water. You are no more saved when you get baptized than after you get baptized. Baptism, in fact, one of the markers that I see when people come to me and talk about salvation, if somebody says, I need to get baptized, uh, the, the first thing I want to talk about is not their baptism. Why do you want to be baptized? Because I could, we y'all can all line up. I can fill it up with water. I can dunk every one of you. I mean, I can dunk you and dunk you and dunk you and dunk you. You can come every day if you want to. We can fill it up with water, and you can go straight to hell. And I'm not trying to be vulgar, but it, it has no salvific value. But in many, not just Roman Catholics, but in other denominations, there is a they consider it a sacrament, meaning that it actually conveys grace. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. I, I've got into numerous times, I, I think we've got to understand why we take the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, there is no grace in the Lord's Supper. The difference, again, in Roman Catholic doctrine, and not just with Catholics, but also with some other Protestants, is when they take the Lord's Supper, we either believe that we are receiving grace by taking it, or we believe that it is a symbol of the grace we've already received. We teach that it is a symbol of the grace we've already received. That is just a, a look, it, they were never good, even before we went to the little cups we've got now. But those little crackers, they taste like foam peanuts, and the grape juice tastes like it's stale. It's horrible. What Catholics believe is in a doctrine called transubstantiation. They actually believe that every time they take communion, a miracle happens when they take the bread, and they are actually physically eating the body of Christ and drinking His blood, and that by doing that, that is conveying grace. So they are receiving grace by the act of taking communion. So at its very core, that's a works-based righteousness. And anytime we try to add anything to grace, it's become legalistic works-based righteousness. So let's say that someone received the Lord Jesus Christ and never was baptized. Is it possible that that person could enter into the kingdom of God? I the thief on the cross shows up, and maybe one of the angels says, have you ever been baptized? He probably said, what's that? I've never heard of that. What are you talking about, baptized? I don't know what you're talking about. You think you can come in here without being baptized? Well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. My authority doesn't rest in the baptistry or in the water. My authority rests on the man on the cross. And that better be where the authority and your hope comes from, not because a church says so or a priest says to or a denomination says so, but because Jesus says so. The cross reveals the love of God in a way that nothing else can. So as we understand these words of Jesus, we understand that these are some of the very last words that Jesus spoke. In fact, immediately in Luke, you, you read that the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't it amazing that the very last words that Jesus spoke right before this was him telling this man that he would be with him forever. I don't know. I I try to think about what heaven's like, and sometimes I think it's kind of futile because I know it's going to be 
fantastic, but I think all of our efforts are so minuscule. I really think it's going to be so much better than anything you can even possibly imagine that it's hard to get our minds around it. But I don't know. Maybe the Lord will excuse me for having a little bit of a holy imagination. I don't know how exactly... I don't know exactly how we interact with the Lord because I can't imagine being in his presence or all removed from sin. But 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 just just to think about it. I wonder if every day, because time's different there. I don't understand how that works. But in eternity, we've had two thousand years now since this guy heard those words. Today you will be with me in paradise. I wonder if every now and then, maybe every day, that thief still walks by Jesus and says, hey, you remember that time you saved me? You remember that day? I wonder how often or how long it's been since you've bowed your head. You said, Jesus, remember that time you saved me? You remember that time you told me I could come? You remember that time that I was granted inheritance and sonship and adoption and redemption and forgiveness? Do you, you, you remember that time? Can I tell you something? He remembers. He remembers. And so should you. Lord Jesus, I bow before your throne because your gospel is glorious and your grace is beautiful and your blood is available to all who would come before you and repent of their sins, recognizing their depravity and your righteousness. So Lord, just like the thief on the cross, Lord, we come. And God, we recognize that our complete dependence is on you telling us that not only are we forgiven and been made right with God, but there is a plan for our future, and that plan is eternity with you. Jesus, I thank you that I've got forever to tell you thank you. May I not forget it to do it today. In Jesus' name, amen.